listening to The Enneagram Journey with Suzanne Stabile. A review we received on iTunes is that I jump in and nobody knows who is talking. So I'm going to fix that moving forward. My name is Joel and I work for Life in the Trinity Ministry doing all sorts of things and stuff, including helping put this podcast together. Today's episode is part two of Suzanne's conversation with Annie Graham Four and someone who I think is just a complete genius, Ryan McLaren. A reminder that this conversation was recorded at the Lumeria Bookstore in Jackson, Mississippi, which is one of Suzanne's absolute favorite bookstores in the world. If you're in the Jackson area, definitely swing by and check it out. If you like the sound of a live podcast and you want to be a part of it, please join us on Friday, October 18th in Dallas. Suzanne and a panel of guests will be talking all things Enneagram, especially our repressed and dominant centers. And if you want to make a weekend of it, the very next day on the 19th is the Four Mantras, Relationships, and Enneagram event with Suzanne. All ticket proceeds from the live podcast are going to support the Austin Street Center here in Dallas. You can learn more about the incredible work that they do at austinstreet.org. I hope you enjoy the rest of Suzanne and Brian's conversation, and I hope we see you at an upcoming event, and good luck on the journey. I think that we can't stand to be on the threshold. We just can't stand it. And I think people who are kind of fearful by nature or anxious run back to how we used to do it. And I think people who are a little more um, of the type who like to explore and imagine then they run forward to create something new. But the problem is that neither one works because running forward, that group of people create something quickly mm-hmm. that isn't tethered to what we're building on. Mm-hmm. It's just a new thing. Yeah. And that didn't work. Yeah. And going back, it never works and certainly isn't going to work yeah. for the church. Yeah. So then the question is, how do we help people stay yeah. in liminal space? Yeah. And Richard Rohr said at one time that he thinks liminality or liminal space is the most teachable space. Mm. So my response to that has become, how can we offer good teaching Mm. to the most people that isn't um, decided on by a guru? Mm. So I I don't want to take away from anything that any of the teachers that Oprah puts on mm-hmm. her school or all the things. I don't want to take away from any of the people who teach in the CAC school. I don't want to, I don't want to take away from that. And at the same time, I wish there was a format for teachers to teach what they're thinking and then have it be collectively discussed and learn rather than having to teach within this yeah. parameter. So you, I don't know if you still go places. You may be at a point where you don't have to do that anymore, but I still teach in some places where I kind of get the talk when I get there that there are certain things I can't talk about. Yeah. yeah I don't get that too much anymore, but I, I've certainly had a lot of it. Yeah. 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 We, we're just, we're at a weird time and there's no way around it. No. And people are stressed. They're pushed uh, uh, on so many different levels and probably, 
you know, maybe the nines are hanging in there, but I, I don't know. I think just about everybody feels that our civilization isn't working. It's not just the church. It's not just no, government. It's, it's not everything. Every, you know, you, you think about healthcare, you think about the music industry, you think about sports, you think about higher education, like the post office, you know, you, you just think uh, any part of human civilization right now is at a period of stress because the entire thing is unsustainable and because we're thrown into situations we've never been. Right. And we're probably at going through shifts in human consciousness that mm. are might have might the last one of these might have happened 300 B.C. Right. So this yep. is a big deal. So, yeah, it's it, it's not easy. Uh, and and the challenges we face are so great. One example is Friedman said in his new book, he said that um, it takes if you want to patent something, then you get to file with the patent office and then you get three to five years to keep working on it. Yeah. And then you get 20 years. Yeah. And then it becomes a patent. Yeah. And Friedman said that's obsolete. Yeah, sure so there's is. no such thing anymore as a patent because 20 years from now it's something else. Exactly right. Exactly. And so we're dealing at a pace that, that we just can't, we can't. can't uh, our, our old institutions can't keep up with. And so then some people become impatient. They say, burn the, burn the institutions down. But of course, then you end up with Libya or Syria. You know, people have no idea how dependent we are on institutions. So this is, uh, there's no easy way around this. I, it seems to me, you know, in, in systems theory, there's this principle of equilibrium, right. that a system keeps equilibrium. And one way to describe liminal space is liminal space is a state of uh, chaos. It's enough chaos that the system hasn't disintegrated, but it, uh, I mean, it's not so much that the system right. is disintegrated, but it's enough that the system isn't stable. Right. And, uh, and that's the only time that major systems change can happen. You need a certain amount of instability. It's terrifying and there's no easy way around it. And it's dangerous. And demagogues thrive in times like this because they come along and say, I'm the only person who That's can right. fix this. That's very and scary. And they give you even more to be afraid of. And you'll give all your power to them so that you can get their promise of, and you can subcontract out your anxiety to somebody That's with so an good. excess of confidence. And they will sell you that, you know, a lot of people don't know that the term con artist comes from the term confidence artist. And they're people who uh, have learned how to manipulate the anxiety of others by their own excessive confidence. Are you and, writing down subcontract out your anxiety? I am. Yeah. yeah uh, there's a big, big market for that, you know. Um, so uh, I wish I don't have any easy answer in it except this. It, and it, it relates to what we were talking about before. We need a little circle of friends that includes people who are very different from us. Amen. <laughs> and, and we need to have enough respect that we listen to them mm -hmm. and that we have to. And this is where your work is so important, where we realize I am so limited in my own thinking. I, I will drive off this cliff without even knowing it if I don't have somebody around who knows right. how to put the brake on or right. I will be stuck here forever if I don't have somebody around who will step on the accelerator. I have these inbuilt biases to self-destruction and boy do I need people around who will, you know, flick me in the head. <laughs> 
You know, uh, Richard Foster, what, in the 70s, was trying to help us get in small groups to talk about things. And I've quoted him one million times. And that, you know, I'm prone to hyperbole, as you well know, but I don't think that is hyperbole <laughs> in this sense. And he said in the 70s that the new tools of the devil are muchness and manyness and noise and crowds and hurry. Yeah. And that was before technology. And I think creativity is waning yeah. because we're busy all the time. And so, and this is so sophomoric, like I don't even know what I'm talking about because I haven't seen the movies. But I think, have you ever noticed how often I say I don't even know what I'm talking about with this is what I think? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like a repressed thinking function. That sounds like a very bold thinking function. Go ahead. I think the, the movies that are so... Like that whole new Avengers series and all of those movies that I've not seen. Phenomenal. There's there's 22. I, well, Dad bought one Sunday night by accident, so we got our money back. <laughs> so that's where we are on the mm -hmm. Avengers movies. But what I'm trying to say is that they seem to be so creative that if we could find a place in between where we are and that level of imagination, we might be able to imagine a way to move forward individually and collectively that seems doable. Like, you know, I, I, that doesn't seem doable to me. And I don't, I think we're dualistic in mm. that too. And this is the space that we're living in. It's ours to do something in this space mm. right now, but I don't think people know what to do. Yeah. I just don't think they do. And so, you know, I keep referencing over and over because it was so important to me, your work when movements become institutions. Yeah. Because it seems like we're to a place where if we can't turn something into an institution, then we think it should die. Mm -hmm. We, in fact, it's interesting that movements can only be born when there is sufficient instability in institutions. Institutions will always squeeze out movements that are, that challenge them or threaten them. So you have to have a certain amount of weakness or, or instability or conflict or disequilibrium in an mm -hmm. institution. That creates the space where a movement can form. So we're watching it happen, you know, as we're talking this week, there's been all the protests going on for the last several months, really, in Hong Kong. Right. Um, so the, the, the fear is that the main institution of the uh, Chinese government mm -hmm. will expand and uh, in, in Gulf, Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So they're realizing before this thing gets stronger, we have to stop. We have to stop it. So it's it's what's going on in every different dimension of life. Yeah. And uh, and you know, it's uh, our our government is so sick. Our country is so such a mess. But when you think about it, the fact that every four years we have a little nonviolent war. Um, and we, we set up factions and we create this, this equilibrium every four years where we say, what are we about? What are the big issues now? What, what should we, what changes do we need? You know, for all of the problems and all the agony we're going to go through of ridiculous robocalls and idiotic slogans and horrible rallies and everything else that's going to make us all sick. Uh, and just wait till the, the ads start coming on no, with I the can't. scary music and all the rest. But 
the, we can step back and say at least every four years we have planned some planned disequilibrium in our system to make us have to rethink about things. Uh, well, that's interesting. But whether we'll succeed or not, I mean, this is where we're all hanging in the balance, you know. But, you know, when you were saying that before, one of the things I thought of is this is where the right, like, I think our religions are failing us with the rituals they're offering us, but they're succeeding by reminding us we need rituals. And I think we have to either find better meaning for our rituals or we have to discover some new rituals. Rituals are one of the things that helps us make it through liminality, I think. Yep. That's fascinating because, you know, I finally had to have Joe help me design a ritual of some kind that I could say before I leave a, a city where I've been teaching because I couldn't leave all the stories that I heard yes, there. Yes. So I was taking all of yes, them with me. Yes. And I, I couldn't talk myself out of it. I couldn't think myself out of it. I had to have a ritual, a ritual that leaves it there and then I come back home. It's funny that when you say that it makes me think that thing in the gospels shake off the dust off right. your feet. That's right. like it's kind of a ritual. It's it exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The reverend literally did that after one of our moves when I was younger from town A to town B. Is that so? Yeah. We were like well, you, a caravan, all the moving, yeah. all the cars carrying all of our belongings, and Joe's the head car, and he pulled off, so everybody else did too, and then everybody's kind of looking, and Joe gets out of the car, and he jumps up in the air and shakes the dust from his feet, and then he gets back in his car, and he pulls back on the highway, going. and we all kept going. Kept going. That's great. And it was really kind of healing for all of us. It was a very difficult appointment. It was a tense move. Yeah. I don't, I don't that all became real, real for me, who was having a, a pretty decent time. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I remember when somebody said to me that applause at the end of a song at a concert is a ritual. It's a way of saying, let's make a bunch of noise and that sound. Get something sort of white noise oh. in to that song is over. We're done with it. It's not just saying thank you. It's saying that's over. Now let's cleanse the palate. It's like, you know, oh, like cleansing the palate. Sorbet. So we're ready for the next course, ready for the next song. I'm going to start clapping know. after a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you looking at me? No. Just, <laughs> you know, if, if Whitney were here, I'd look at her. I'd, I'd oh, make but sure we hear this. The stand yeah. in. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> yeah. can, can I change you the subject? You can do anything. So I, I'm thinking I, the irony is hitting me afresh of you saying I have a, that you have a, a repressed thinking function when it's obvious your thinking function is remarkable. It's motivated by your desire to connect, your desire to help. I wonder if the, we need a better word than repressed. The, the answer to that is kind of absolutely, because at every... <laughs> He's not I'm sure, so, but the answer is absolutely. Yeah, I've never thought about this before. Um, <laughs> that... So often, the answer is it's either a misuse or the least used or used. Like subordinate might be a better word or auxiliary. Like, uh, like the main thing here is connecting and helping and serving. I think really hard so I can do that. You know what I'm saying? I do hear you. Uh, I do like hear you. Repressed has this idea that you're holding it back, but I don't sense you're holding it back. I sense you're letting it loose. You're just not letting it loose for its own sake. You're letting it loose for something else's sake. And like fours and nines do. It's not, it's you're not, not doing it's anything. It's not that doing's not happening. Right. Yeah. It's that it's not not appropriate doing. But, yeah. And yeah. same with the feeling and the thinking. Like you said, you're thinking all the time. And there are times with other twos in my life that <laughs> I would like you to think about this. 
<laughs> and not about the waitress and how her day is. Yeah. So. Joel, you know, here I am, sweet me, and I'm hanging around with two young adults, one's a three and one's a seven. And they travel with me. They're everywhere with me. They have no appreciation for how I do life. <laughs> We're at a restaurant, and this woman literally comes to the table, the, the server, and she comes to the table. And, you know, I'm, I'm relational with everybody. 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 We just did it. Well, we I just, just saw did it at lunch it. with I candy. just saw it, yeah. So, um... <laughs> I just saw it. So, we were in a restaurant in somewhere, having breakfast one morning, and it's packed. And this server is so busy. And I looked at her and said, bless your heart. You have an awful lot of people to take care of. You're so, you must be so tired. You're so busy, but you're really good at what you do. And every time she came around the table, I'd give her another compliment and chatted up with her a little bit. Joel finally looked across the table and said, mom, she's so busy. She doesn't have time to be friends with you. <laughs> I think something as I'm thinking about this, and and my wife's a one and so she's in that stance of repressed thinking or whatever we're going to end up calling it and the other part of it though is when she when she works on that this is i hate to say this out loud that's equally frustrating for me because then it's all right you want me to bring this up and so that's when verbalization comes in and engaging about the thinking and trying Mm -hmm. But they can't do that on their own, it seems. So I'm, I'm asking questions. I'm sorry. Are you, where's I, I, the question in that? Was any of that incorrect, first of all, in your findings? No. A thinking repressed person cannot, a thinking whatever person, cannot bring that up without conversation with somebody else. That's a fact. Just can't. Yeah. Well, so, but, but part of that is we don't trust our thinking because we've not used it a lot because we make it in the world without thinking. I made it a long way with just feeling and doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think I am saying this correctly. I, when feeling comes up for me, I don't do it by myself. Right. When I bring up feeling, it is in a one-to-one or about something else that I share. Right. right. And it's... Again, I try to push it back down pretty quick, but it's, here's how I'm feeling. Right. This is what it is. Right. But I also require someone else. To hear it. <laughs> Just thinking that has a little, your, your feeling comes a little sticker. Do not try this at home alone. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. If a seven feels in the woods, does anybody hear it or something? <laughs> <I don't... laughs> does anybody cry? <laughs> what are you hopeful about? Oh, my. Well, you know, you're a little saying, what is mine to do? A whole bunch of the things I feel I'm doing, I, I have some hope about that I'll be able to make some small contribution. I have to say that anybody who thinks about climate change, there's just, you know, there's there's a few little points of hope. We're making big progress, We, you know, and a bunch of technological things. But, oh, my gosh, the political things are so... Horrible, right? So uh, I'm hopeful that things might be getting bad enough that some people might be ready to help them get better. But that's that's a little bit of hope against a lot of uh, anxiety. <laughs> yeah. I I also am hopeful about the ability of people to live 
decent and meaningful and good lives, even when a whole lot of bad stuff is happening. Mm -hmm. For 35 years, you know, I had a Sunday school class. And it was always a new class that I started when Joe was appointed at a church. And it was always intergenerational. And one of the most wonderful things that I got to watch over the years was how the older men and the older women in the class would console the young ones mm. when they thought, I can't do this. Yes. We haven't had any sleep. The baby has colic. We haven't yes. slept in weeks. You know, all that stuff. And they would, they would kind of say, you know, it's all right. It, it's all going to work out. You'll get through it. Yeah, it's yeah. not always going to be that way. I think it's just hard to define what we're getting through. Yeah. I feel like every day I'm trying to get through something, yeah. but I, I don't quite know yeah. what it is. Yeah. It, it seems to be so multifaceted yes. that I I don't quite know what it is. So when I, I know I keep talking about, y'all should read Thomas Friedman, Thank You for Being Late. I've been talking about it for 18 months, but one of the things that's so important to me about that book, I think, is that he gives me an out before he challenges me to anything. And the out is that the rate of change is so unexpected and we've not had a changing rate of change like this ever. Mm -hmm. So it's okay that you're really struggling. Mm -hmm. But you can't do anything to change the changing rate of change. Mm -hmm. And I worry that people uh, mine and Joe's age are going to kick back and say, well, we've we kind of done our part because we know it's not okay to say it's going to be all right. Yeah. That's not an answer. Yeah. And I think when things are like this, we feel so inadequate. Yeah. That we don't know what would be an answer. Yeah. Right. So we just I, it makes me want to engage more in mm -hmm. conversation with people our age and older, but I don't know what to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. You know that old saying, lead, follow, or get out of the way? Yep. I think I think there's like some basic guidance for people once you pass 60 <laughs> to say you're between now and when you hit uh, yeah. the end, um, you're going to have to negotiate. There are places where you have more potential to lead now than you've ever had. Yep. There are places where you're following, you're throwing the weight of your age behind a younger leader Yeah. could really make a difference for them. Amen. And you know what? There might be a time where you ought to go play golf. Yeah. And Rest. just get out of the way yeah. and enjoy life and let some other people be in the spotlight and, and that sort of thing. I, I, you know, when I left the pastorate, it was interesting. I, I, I believe in the local church. I, I feel its job is really hard and really important. But when I finally made the decision to leave, one of the things that helped me do it was by saying, I've been doing this for 24 years and I'm, I'm a little tired and I don't think I'm learning anything super new right now. But if I get out of the way, somebody can come in here mm -hmm. and this will be the adventure of their lives, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. and, and that's to me the get out of the way part. That's not, it's not an insult. It's no, an act of generosity. Yeah, yeah, it's an act of generosity. I don't want to talk about one more thing. Yep. I think our way of talking about this is sometimes a little bit different, but we are saying the same thing. 
And my way of saying it is that I think there is um, anger and anxiety free-falling everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think it's landing on all of us equally. Mm. And I think we can no longer deflect it effectively. And I think it is um, coloring our decisions without making itself known. Mm -hmm. So I think I I'm, I'm make decisions based on free-floating anger and anxiety, and I'm totally unaware of the anger and the anxiety, and yet it's affecting my decisions. It's affecting what I think and how I react to things and my angst and all that. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's, I, I think it's true. So if, if, we, if we step back for a minute and say, who profits from my anxiety? Uh, a, a bunch of people profit a lot by my anxiety. If you take mass media, social media, uh, my uh, Grace always laughs. Uh, every morning talk show like that's on TV, you'll, uh, almost every one, or every morning news show will have some danger to your children. That's right. Um, the danger in your child's orange juice right after the break, you know, and and because our brains evolved for millions of years. I mean, this goes back to the reptile, our reptile ancestors. Our brain has been evolving to avoid danger. So if somebody can make you be aware of danger, they've got your attention. And attention is the hottest commodity in today's uh, economy. So fear, anxiety gets attention. Social media, I want clicks. Uh, how do I get clicks? Well, anxiety really will do it. And anger is closely related to anxiety because if I'm angry, I might cause a scene. I might hurt somebody. I might threaten somebody if I'm angry. So that creates, that certainly you know, connects to the danger. And if I am angry, if I'm anxious for long enough, I'm gonna get angry at somebody. So you think mass and social media, you think demagogues, that's how they gain power. Make you afraid and then make you think that you need them. It's how the mafia works. You better start paying us for our security services mm -hmm. or something bad's going to happen. And in the back of your mind, you know, yeah, if somebody else doesn't do something bad, you'll do something bad That's to right. make me pay. So, And demagogues are just forms of mafia. They're just political mafia. Um, you think of religion. Religion gets gains a whole lot by making you be afraid of hell, making you be afraid of some big problem. Mm -hmm. So religion uses fear. And the economy, uh, you... you you might go out in public and people might think you're not wearing the shoes that everybody's wearing this. You know, we got it. Like everybody profits from anxiety. And maybe if we started taking seriously the link between anxiety and profit, it would help us get right. the hook, right. let ourselves off the hook to say, oh, it's not just me. And it, I don't know. I, I think that might wake us up a little bit. And then I also, when you say that, I think about that f famous FDR saying, the only thing we have to feel is feel itself. Right. But this sense that, oh, if you want to be anxious about something, be anxious about what fear does to your, to your brain and your body, what stress does yep. to your brain and body. And maybe that'll get our attention to shift the discussion to something else, you know? Um, so I'd say that's a part of the picture. 
But here's the other thing that I, I'm, when you bring that topic up that comes to my mind, what if deep down we know that we have two or three really big problems and we love to be anxious about 75 other problems uh -huh. because they distract us from, from the two those. or three. There you go. That's good. And if, if we, and this to me again is part of the job of spiritual communities. They ought to be, the, there ought to be some community of people whose job is to try to help us to figure out what's really worth being anxious about. <laughs> yep. Yep. This isn't a question. It's just something I'd like to hear y'all talk about that okay. I think people would like to hear. Speaking of fear and anxiety and kind of the tide turning some and changing the world, you both have gay children and have dealt with that. Did you already talk about that? Mm -mm. Would y'all be okay talking about sure. just, I don't even know what I want y'all to share, but your story as parents with religious background it's yep. one of those things where I just think the story mm. will help people. Yeah, it's just a really sense. important time for telling those stories, I think. I think that's great. Yeah. Well, I don't know where to begin on that except to say, you know, I grew up in a fundamentalist setting back in the 60s and 70s when we didn't talk about homosexuality because we didn't talk about sexuality. I remember being a little boy and our family used to read the Bible at dinner. My dad would have us read the Bible at dinner. And there kept being this word circumcision. And I had no idea what it meant. And when I asked my parents, I think my mother explained what it meant. And I just thought, that's in the Bible. I was scandalized, <laughs> you know. So, uh, you know, we didn't talk about sex. And, uh, and I, I don't think I knew what homosexuality was when my first friend came out to me about being gay. So that's how, you know, mm -hmm. it was just. Mm -hmm. uh, how old were you? I was in high school. Okay. Probably ninth grade. So uh, maybe 10th grade. So. And because of that friend, as later on, when homosexuality became an obsession of my religious, of the religious community, because I'd had that friend, I never bought what they were saying. You know what I mean? Right. Like they would use words like abomination and all that. I never bought it. But I was also aware of how much trouble you could get in. And so I, I tried to walk on eggshells for a lot of years as a minister about sure. it. And when um, I have four children, when my and I have uh, two uh, heterosexual, two uh, gay children, and my when my first uh, child who came out as gay came out, I remember feeling horrible pain, not because he was gay, but because I wondered how much pain me bringing him up in a religious community had had added to his pain. Like I just had this feeling. Did I ruin my kid's life by bringing up adjacent to religion mm -hmm. that is so obsessed with this? You know, it was just this as a parent, you don't want to cause your child pain ever. Meanwhile, I have friends who are willing to throw their children under the bus to keep from getting in trouble with the religious community. Right. You know, uh, so all of that is, you know, part of my story. Two things that play uh, played some role in my own coming to terms with what it meant to have gay children. We had a dear friend who's charismatic, you know, and charismatic folks are happy to tell you a word from the Lord. And we had a whole lot of people who told us that we were sinning and evil for accepting our children and we should have 
sent them off to some re-education camp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but one of our charismatic friends came over. She says, I have a word for the Lord from you. And it is that God will bring blessings into your life and wonderful people into your life who you never would have had if you didn't have a gay child. And it was this, this it was like she was giving us a blessing. She was saying, Aww. this is going to be a blessing in your life. It's not going to be a bad thing. Yeah. And my gosh, has that turned out to be true. Yeah. I mean, our lives have been so enriched and by being in solidarity with our gay children, it's put us in solidarity with so many other people. And it's brought incredible benefits that don't sound like benefits. But when I got rejected by all of these religious people simply for loving my gay children, I realized how worthless their approval had been before that. In other words, right. I was afraid of people like this. I was eager to keep the respect to people like this who would in, who had this warped sense of values you know so that was all that was one thing um but another friend of mine says that one of the gifts of the gay community in coming out about their homosexuality is to help all the rest of us come out about our sexuality oh, that's <laughs> and, good and and just to become more honest about sexuality in all of our lives and what uh, a, a reality this is for us as biological creatures with hormones and you know all the rest and all the so social challenges of that right. i just think that's all part of the gift of this thing that's going on oh, i'll say one other thing and that is that i've come to think that one of the bigger issues in this is actually about patriarchy that part of what is being challenged by the conversation about homosexuality is this old way of human organization that puts a an aggressive man in charge to keep everybody else in line. And I think that's part of the, part of what's being challenged right now. I think, um, I taught my children that the church was a safe place. So I grew up in a home completely different from yours. My dad was a doc, my mom was a nurse, and we uh, were very open about sexuality and all, all of it. I never felt like I couldn't ask my parents about anything and it was completely different. And I grew up in a home where my parents, if they didn't have room for somebody that they encountered, they made room. Mm -hmm. it, it's like, well, that now that we know Fred, that we can't have that be part of our thinking anymore because yes. Fred's here, yes. right? The people came first. Yes, always. And so I didn't have any of that. And it's so interesting to me at this moment in history because I grew up believing that my children, and I, I had children, believing that my children would always be safe as they were in the United Methodist Church. You know, BJ is BJ. So that's a, that's a thing. Mm. And he is a, very active in a United Methodist Church, and he's going to stay, he and his husband, and they're going to stay active, and they're going to, stay in the conversation. But I think one of the, the places where we are uh, struggling, those of us um, who have gay children in the church or uh, in relation to the church, is that uh, we're getting whipped up on with seven scriptures and we're not theologians. <laughs> so the people that we meet on the street don't know how to argue against that. And most people in the queer community don't know how to argue against that. So then the question gets to be, what can you do as a public teaching theologian and what 
can you do as a pastor in a very large church in advising people on this podcast how they might better understand and care for their own child and how they can do that avoiding conversations that aren't going to get them anywhere. Hmm. You should solve that one, Joe. I wish I could solve it. Uh, I find it very interesting to be where I find myself in the United Methodist Church at this point because when I pastored in uh, a Roman Catholic Church in the city of Dallas, uh, a very significant portion of our congregation was in the gay neighborhood, very close to where the church was. And it wasn't an issue, and we didn't talk about it. It wasn't ever a thought that they, those people who were in the uh, LGBTQ community couldn't come and worship and participate in the church community. And so it was something fully participate. Fully participate. And it was so it was something I was always always very comfortable with. And I like to look back and think that uh, my theological education, my scriptural education was really top shelf. Sure. Because of the number of years that I was in seminary and because of the professors that I had. I can remember one particular course where, where in order to get an A in the course, you had to choose, I don't know how many books of the Bible, Old Testament, for that particular course, and write papers on each one of them, and you had to write a pretty significant uh, exegesis of the, of the scriptures of that particular book. And in none of those ever did the issue of homosexuality come up mm-hmm. uh, for me. I certainly have never been one of those theologians who took scripture literally and word for word, black and white. And so I was, I've always been aware that homosexu- the word homosexual has never appeared in the scriptures. It is a word that we have attributed to certain places in Scripture. But if we were to do significant scriptural study and exegesis of the sociological and the economic and various other contexts in which those things took place, we would find that what Scripture is talking about is not what we understand today of loving persons committed in same gender relationships as scripture is talking about Mm. they're not the same thing so i find myself now in a denomination where it is becoming the dividing issue as it has been for so many denominations Yeah. yeah yeah And, and we are really struggling in, in the denomination and may very well end up with a, a denominational split, as many other denominations have, have also done. Because we have a gay son, I am totally uh, certain in my brain that it's not a choice. 
that he is he is who he is a child of God loved by God for who he is the way he is as he is just as I am and he has the right to choose who he's going to love and how he's going to love that person and be in a an intimate loving relationship with that person though in my brain there's there's not a theological issue or problem for me you too i assume yeah but you know i grew up with the yeah, theological with the system issues. that yeah. it makes makes it a big deal and it may, maybe i can offer an analogy that might help some people so i have a person in my life i've known this this woman since she was born and i remember as a little girl and uh, uh, so I've, I've watched her grow up her entire life. And she is on the autism spectrum. And so when she was a little girl, she would just be happy, delightful child. Something would happen and she'd be screaming and writhing on the floor. She'd start to bite herself. She would draw blood and, and you know, it would take hours to get her calm. And back in those days, people didn't talk too much about autism. It just wasn't a term that even most folks had heard. And some people would just say she was a bad kid who threw temper tantrums, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when you saw the degree to which she'd lose control, there was only one thing in the Bible you could compare it to. She was demon demonic. Yeah. Demon possession. Yeah. Well, um, here's the thing. It's, that's the closest category in the Bible you could find to her behavior. And so you could imagine people casting demons out of her. Imagine the psychological trauma you would right. cause by telling her she has the devil in her, uh, knowing what we know now about, about autism, mm -hmm. right? I would call that a, a category error of such phenomenal moral consequence. What, what did Jesus say? You know, it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than, right. to, than to harm one of these little children. And imagine damaging this young girl by calling her demon possessed and telling her she has the devil and she's evil and she has to renounce this and she has to change and if she would just pray and just have faith she'd be cured right well the good news is she's had great treatment and great therapy and she's living a good life as a person with autism right well the fact is when people try to take a verse from the bible and apply it to lgbt people it's the same thing in the ancient world they had no understanding of sexual orientation. Gay people existed, but so did other forms of sexual activity, including rape and so on. So it's just a misapplication of the Bible. Exactly. Um, but here's the deeper issue. Why do people use the Bible that way? Because some powerful white men tell them, and black men and other color men too, powerful men tell them to. Yeah. And at the end of the day, this argument isn't about gay people. It's about who's in charge. Mm -hmm. And uh, who, who's telling the straight people what to think about the gay people? And that isn't going to go away by argument because those people aren't going to give up their power by argument. And to bring back some of our Enneagram discussion, some of them have no idea. They're not even able to see the harm they're doing because all they're thinking about is who they're being loyal to. That's right. They're being loyal to the centuries of tradition in the past. We can't even see how many people they're hurting in the present, how many people will be hurt in the future. It's just about loyalty to the tradition of the past. And even more personally, I'll never forget the father who his son had come out. My son came out. 
he came, he drove five hours to come see me. He sat on my living room in my couch. He burst into tears and he said, I feel like I'm being faced with a choice. If I accept my son, I'm rejecting my father. Oh my. If I'm loyal to my father, I have to reject my, my son. son. And I thought that's it right there, you know, and who's who it's certain people are in power. I also just want to say that I think we live in a time of such great insecurity that we don't feel like we're in unless we know who's out. I was going to say what you're talking about, I feel like can be applied to so many things. Right. All of that can be applied to body image, not just sexuality, but yes, we've had this talk several times how I don't there's sometimes that I've said things that could end up being so shaming to my to my kids yes of course I meant yeah nothing by it right and it was and sometimes it was about myself but I set that example of of this I think it is from my my spot at the table I think it has to do with I'm okay if I know who's not okay I'm good if I know who's bad yes I'm in if I can if somebody's out Yes. It's like there is, there doesn't seem to be a great desire for everybody to be in. Yes. yes. Or for everybody to be at the table. It, And I don't get that, really. I think it connects to what you were saying before about anxiety. Yeah, if, if we're constantly being told you're not good enough, you're, you don't weigh the right amount, you mm-hmm. don't look the right, your hair isn't right, this isn't right, that isn't right, you're so unacceptable. Uh, like what a gift to be able to have some group of people you can point to and say, I'm acceptable. They're unacceptable. You know, exactly. Oh, my goodness. It, and, and they might not even mean any malice toward the other people. What they're really doing is medicating their own shame. I was going to say even I might not be this, but I'm this. Yeah. So I'm orthodox. If, it, if, it, if it's not other oriented, yeah. it's still I'm OK because of this. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Rohr said one time the reason sexuality is such a hot topic the reason homosexuality is such a hot topic is because people know if they're not. <laughs> so they get to be in the I'm not group. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no end to what we've learned from having uh, a gay son and from the gay community and from the number of people who have talked to us about their children. I think, um, I think one of the mistakes we make, all of us, us in ministry and all of us, is that we tend to not talk as openly about the parts of life that we think everybody's not going to approve of. Mm-hmm. And so we, we diminish people having a place to stand. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I used to have a place to stand here, but now I can, now that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And then that's not okay. And so some people get so marginalized that they're just not in the picture anymore. We're out of time. We're out of time. Thank y'all for coming so we had somebody like here.